Yeah! <laughs> you did it! <laughs> What's finally! Up? What's up, man? Oh, you finally dressed up for me, Brad. What do we got going on here? What are you talking about? Oh, what a beautiful wig. Or did you grow that out in a week? No, it's been, yeah. This I I, uh, I haven't <laughs> I've been able to visit my barber. <laughs> this is so good. Oh, I needed a good laugh. Uh, what I did warn you, didn't I? I said if you didn't have something on yeah, next dude. time we did this, I was quitting. I take it very seriously. <laughs> I think you're serious, Benny. You should. But you should. This is good, though, right? This is a good look for me. <laughs> oh, my God. It's too good. You got to let the people... I'm curious though why your mustache is darker than your hair. Do you dye? Uh, my only my hairdresser knows for sure. I was just saying today how my friend was growing in a mustache and he's a little older than me and I was like, "Listen, pal, mine's getting a little more salt than pepper these days. You got to be careful." And I think I know for sure now that Tom Selleck was dying. You know, he was <laughs> definitely dying. And I imagine him at a a table read for. Uh, for for like a sitcom where he was asked to play a grandfather or something and he just drove straight out to CVS and took care of it, you know? Just couldn't take it. There's no way. Facial hair goes gray fast. I, if you're seeing anyone over 45 with purely brown, blonde facial hair, it's a lie. Yeah, my, um, I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons I stopped with the beard because I was getting that grizzly yeah. old guy beard. My mustache is still okay. I got a few gray hairs in there, but... Um, you can salt and pepper a mustache. That's fine. Yeah, it's not so bad. Uh, where's the balance? I feel like a cool big gray beard is cool. Right. But a cool beard that's going gray is not cool. No, that's the thing is mine was... So, I would use the word so what do you modeled. Do? It was modeled. Right. It was modeled. Right. Would I, you ever die? Would you do it? I did, actually. You did? I did a little bit, and... Um, and it looked fine for a while. I mean, that's one thing about being a one-time blonde is that um, you can kind of get away with some of that stuff. That's easier. true. That's true. Uh, I dyed my hair once, like for real, when I was younger. Uh, and, you know, I have very dark hair and I just threw in blonde dye. So, of course, I have a school ID from Middlesex County College. Orange. Me wearing a Converge hoodie with an orange head. Yeah, yeah, that happened once in my life. Only once. Like that movie, Johnny Dangerously. She hung me on a hook once. Once. <laughs> only took one time. Yeah, only took one. Well, so I didn't need to do any more than on that. The, on the flip side of that, yeah, you know, I used to, well, I spent the 90s pretty much as like Billy Idol, bleach blonde. Few, right. A few times I would do like purple or blue oh, hair. You must have been so cool. I wish I knew you. <laughs> but there's a the oh. funny story is it was one time I was like, all right, whatever. Everybody does this, you know, like everybody's fucking doing the blonde. I got to come up with something different. And uh -huh. I sat down and I like plotted out this look. I actually took like a picture of myself and I like painted on it, like in Photoshop. Sure. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do like these like blue wedges in the side and okay. then I'm going to do black on top <laughs> and in the back. And it looked really rad in this picture, like total like oh, superhero. And like I did it. And not only did it not look super rad like on me, 
But then yeah. I thought that I was losing my hair because my hair has always been really light. And suddenly I could see my oh, scalp because right. my hair was dyed black. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm like, I'm, I've ruined myself. I've killed myself. Somehow this black dye has made all my hair. And I would every single day I would take a shower. I would scour the drain and go like, is my hair falling out? <laughs> you thought the dye was infecting your head and making yeah. your hair fall out? <laughs> I thought somehow it was making my hair fall out because I could all of a sudden see this. Like, I could see my scalp and my hair looked... And I've always uh, had thin hair, you know? Like, I just have fine funny. hair. So, yeah. I make fun of my wife about that a lot. Because, you know, we're we're an organic household. The limits to things are boundless of the things I can't put, in, put on or in my body. You right. know, there's a lot. I agree with most of them. But then I watch her frizz her head. Like, <laughs> once a month with, like, these horrible chemicals. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you know those are made out of bad things, yeah. you know? You know, I'm getting good at these... Uh, what do they call them? Segways. Because <laughs> speaking of my wife, our our uh, our interview this week, Liz Goldwyn and my wife are the reason I ever met Liz. And I was going to talk to her about it when we were doing the interview, but we let off with some, you know, oh, I saw you here, I saw you there. And by the time I rethought of it, we were further in the interview and I didn't want to go back to the inaugural meetings. I thought it would mess up the flow. But it is pretty cool how they met, and I want to tell the story. So my wife owns a company called New York City Sex Trash, started very small, making one-of-a-kind custom lingerie pieces, uh, very rock and roll, very cool. And many, many years ago, she was uh, showing her things at a place called The Dressing Room on Orchard Street, which was kind of a... um, it was a showcase for, for local New York City designers and stuff like that. Uh, Orchard Street, by the way, which is now like the new rock and roll street in yeah, New York City, yeah. which is kind of cool. Uh, Orchard Street Grocer, get the vegetarian Cuban. Oh, amazing. But anyway, so Liz Goldman goes to this place. She sees the piece. She liked it very much. Uh, did some investigating and found out that uh, the person who made it, which is my wife, works at Trash and Vaudeville on St. Mark's Place. So somehow Liz Goldwyn goes from the dressing room to Trash and Vaudeville to find my wife, to be like, I think this is awesome. Uh, It's not sized for me. Is there, you know, another size or something like that? You know, she explained that they're custom pieces and one of a kind. And they had an instant connection. And I think Liz took an interest in my wife and they took an interest in each other and uh, really supported her and like hooked her up with a couple stylists and got her uh, hooked up with a couple interesting people. And just because Liz like felt like doing it just on a whim, you know, I think she saw something, saw some talent, saw some young talent. And it looks like she's always trying to kind of harness creativity and harness young people trying to be creative all the time and i think that our our story is uh is one that really showcases that you know um and they're still friends to this day and um and and still communicate in the same way and i've always found that because who does that you know what i mean who actually takes the time to see something cool go to the other part of new york track this person down talk to them and really have like a genuine concern and want to help and my my wife felt it right away and and i always thought it was very cool man if you got the time and money it's the 
Very good way yeah. to do it. And it's and it's for That's real, dude, because she benefits. She gets to like have the next cool designer on her, you know? Like it's not totally selfish. No, of course not. But it's also I think you find people in certain worlds who are just desperate to see people who are doing things the way you want to do them. You know, like sometimes I run right, into a right. band and I just see the the way they're playing, the style of their songs, the style of the person. And I'm like, I like this. I don't yeah, yeah. care what happens. I just want this to do good. I want those people to do good because I know it's just better. It's better for the world. I'm not sure what my contribution is going to be, but I know that that's better. And and I think some people see that. I really do appreciate it. So I know the last time we saw each other, we couldn't decide whether it was smoking a joint in the back of my bus in L.A. at the Palladium uh, or uh, at her her uh, book reading at, at the Strand. We couldn't figure that out. But regardless, I really enjoyed this interview. I was so happy to have her on. And I realized quickly in my research for this how much I don't know, as much as I thought I knew, about the types of worlds that she's advocating for and the types of things that she's advocating for. I thought you were going to say how much you don't know about the penis. I mean, less than I thought, (laughs) you know, less than I thought. So I really found like the wormhole of doing research really interesting and illuminating for this interview because, you know, there are a lot of times I view myself out of the context of like, you know, your standard American man. I'm like, no, I'm illuminated. I, you know, was raised by a single mom. I'm like this and that. Like I have these insights. And then I get into some of the work she's doing and I'm like, nah, I'm a, I'm an amateur. Like (laughs) walking into a world that I don't know shit about. So I was really happy to, to, you know, open up her mind and and poke her brain and find out what's going on, man. So Let's get into it. Let's let's listen to this because yeah. Let's listen. This to is this an interesting thing. interview. It's going on. You know the last time I saw you, Benny? Do you uh, do you remember when it was? Because I it was, do. We were. I, I think it was at your 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 uh, your reading, right, for your book. Was that the last time? Where which book? The last one, Sporting Guide. Yes, Sporting Guide. Yeah, yeah. We went to. A really, really cool uh, upstairs part of a bookstore that had super vintage million dollar books. I was extremely impressed. That was at the Strand in New York City, which I hope stays open post COVID because that's like an institution. Yeah, I was uh, very enthused with the things I saw that night. You know, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know first editions of this were behind a case anywhere. And, And if. I thought if they did exist, that they'd be in, you know, some, uh, you know, billionaire's private collection that no one ever sees. So I was I was pretty happy to see him, you know, out in a out for a, a normal person like me to see. What, what was the time you you remember seeing me last? I was thinking that was probably the last time I saw you in Los Angeles. We were smoking a joint in the back of your tour bus <laughs> outside the Palladium because I think I had gone to see like uh, Two Chains or someone. <laughs> you were playing. I don't remember where you were playing, but yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember, obviously, vaguely because of our activities. But yeah, yeah, I do remember that. That's awesome. I, was, so I like that we can go high, low, rare books, and uh, you know, 
joints in the tour bus. Listen, I've heard you uh, speak of yourself as a as a Renaissance woman at times, and this would this would prove it to me. You know, <laughs> if if you can do addresses at the upstairs of Strand in front of those books, and also smoke joints in the back of buses, that's that's pretty well rounded. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I also have. I'm also like a diehard um, old school uh, skateboard fan as well. Yeah, I actually uh, have that in my notes, and I do want to address it because I thought that was one of the the coolest things I saw. But first, when we're getting into this, this is part of our at home series. So we usually have a studio in New York that we actually you know see people face to face and do interviews. Brad uh, begrudgingly agreed to do these uh, <laughs> these these series. You know, he's an audio nerd. He reads uh, Tape Op magazine and <laughs> was a little nervous about this. But I wanted to know. So, so everyone seems to have a moment when this whole COVID thing went from uh, concerning to a super real thing that was going to be like affecting our lives. Do Do you have like a a flashbulb moment when you? knew this was something you'd have to take seriously for quite a long time? Um, well, you're going to think this makes me sound very out there, but I started dreaming about uh, a massive illness in wow. January. And That's I actually it. asked my mom to stop flying in January um, because I was just worried about her. And she flies a lot, like more than, more than I do. Um, and so I, I was worried about her immune system. And then Gucci is sponsoring the new season of my podcast. Yes. So we were in Italy. I was in Milan with my team um, to record a, an interview with Alessandra McKelly, the designer and, and do some stuff there right before they had the shutdown and the outbreak. And so I was there, we were there like February 16th to 21st and I'm a German. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I flew to Italy on the 16th with a mask and latex gloves and Clorox wipes, like wiping down the seat. Everybody was looking at me like I was crazy. Um, so yeah, I was you're, already. You're a trail, a trailblazer. <laughs> a germaphobe. A germaphobe, but also like I couldn't sleep the whole time I was there. I was just very, I'm very sensitive huh. to things. And as soon as we got back, um, I told my whole team, Hey guys, like we're going to go into quarantine in America wow. and so everyone you need to get prepared. And just because we were working every day with Gucci and, you know, speaking to them every day, you know, seeing sort of how they were navigating that right, first right. Hand, pretty early. Um, and then I got sick March 1st, um, oh, wow. for two and a half weeks. So I'm, I'm in my like 10th week of, of this. Um, and okay. there weren't COVID tests when I, when I got sick, you know, I had like a version of pneumonia, but there were no tests. And I just immediately was like, okay, uh, this, yeah. So I, I think I've just never really questioned that this was, I've always had dreams that there was going to be something big, you know, probably since like 2014, I've been dreaming of something big that would sort of affect everyone globally. I always thought it would be, uh, climate related. Right, right. Not, not a virus. So I, you know, I mean, this is, I never would have expected something like this, but I guess some people knew Bill Gates, apparently. <laughs> well, I mean, I joke about uh, with a lot of like my punk rock 
punk rock friends and stuff is the fact that like what are you guys surprised about this is literally what we've been sitting around drinking 40s and talking about for the last like 25 (laughs) years is the fact that this is coming and there will be a massive systematic breakdown where power rises to the top once it happens but it's almost like you know like when you know someone's gonna pass away it still doesn't take away the sting when it actually happens it might allow you to mentally prepare a little bit but once the uh you know, the actual shingles start coming off the roof. I think it's still equally as terrifying, even if you've thought about it in the past. Um, now, do you have like a generally like kind of, you know, sardonic nature like that where you're, you know, always thinking something's around the corner or is something pretty acute, like different for you? Well, I don't think it's like, uh, I'm like doomsday. It's just, right. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can see what's going on with, with our world, um, and sort of where the planet is headed yeah. and what human beings have done. And, and just obviously all of the like gross inequality and, you know, in, in every, in every system. So, yeah. I mean, I definitely right at the beginning of this, because as I said, I was, I was sick and quarantined yeah. from March 1st. Um, I was having a lot of like nine 11 flashbacks lived, lived in New York then about a block and a half away from right, the World Trade Center. Right. So I was definitely going through my stuff. And now, now I'm like, I guess adjusting to this very strange new normal, even though about a hundred times a day, I feel like I'm in a science fiction movie. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This strange dystopian future. What was your, like, um, did you have very serious, like, physical symptoms? Did you need to uh, do anything besides for weighted out? Um, I had, yeah, I mean, I couldn't breathe. I had to sleep, Ugh. you know, sitting up. Um, I had really bad vertigo. I was, you know, on the verge of passing out all the time. No appetite, no smell or taste. Um really, you know, really bad coughing. I didn't have a fever though. So, I mean, there's just so much misinformation out there and there hasn't been enough like peer reviewed medical journal publication. I had to stay off social media. I just completely went offline because that was pissing me off. Um, I feel like people there were, um, we're in a phase right now where people just don't want to take a pause. It's like, there's Mm. this need to say things without thinking things through. And yes. there's so many people just feeding this misinformation and feeding this panic that, um, you know, I, at the very beginning I was limiting my social media and my news intake also. Yeah. that That's smart. <laughs> without making my physical symptoms worse, you know, cause I would yeah. be like up all night at the beginning, like refreshing Google every like three uh, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Googling coronavirus. Yeah, it's terrifying. And like, and you realize, you know, I had the same thing going through this where I had seen a tweet, you know, that greatly affected me and sent me on some wormhole. And, you know, it was apparently, uh, you know, a, a, a doctor or a nurse in Italy. And then is, is this, and I'm like, listen, my whole night just got ruined. And this could have been a 13 year old in Staten Island. Like, how the fuck am I supposed to know? You know what I mean? Like, there's so many things that are out there basically to just uh, elicit a feeling, you know, or just confirm a feeling you already had. So if you go on the social media uh, scared and sick, <laughs> it's the last place you need the the confirmation you're going to get, right? Because you're going to 
you know, see a diet uh, epidemiology report from uh, an insurance broker, not a scientist. For sure. And then people sharing things without vetting the news source. I mean, for me as a researcher, someone who, you know, has built my career on moving slowly and spending time in libraries and making sure I have, even with what we present with my company, the sex ed, we're not... I might be out into some out there stuff in my personal life um, or esoteric things, but I'm not going to put out information as fact. Right. Um, you know, that isn't, hasn't have verified sources. So it just felt like there was such a big rush to put out all these theories. And I, I don't think anyone knows what the fuck is going on right now. Yeah. Clearly our, our leaders don't know what the hell is going on. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The dust is going to settle. Well, also Stephanie uh, was sick to anyone who doesn't know, on going off track, that is my wife, uh, and our kids were as well. So we definitely had something kicking around here too that we believe was that. Uh, there was also no fever. Um, so yeah, I'm with you. I think you know there's a million things going on that people don't know about. And even towards the end of her cycle, out of nowhere, Steph she she kind of started losing her hearing, mm. and and you know uh, an ER doctor that's a good friend of ours is like, yeah, I've seen this a couple times now. Towards the tail end of this cycle, some people have, you know, inflammation in their eardrums and can lose hearing permanently. And, you know, we would have never known that if there wasn't like a boots on the ground person giving us some information, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. It's just this brave new world of trying to sort out uh, what's the right information and what we're actually supposed to do. Um, yeah, I have the same issue with social media and uh, need to really limit it. It's... But that, that leads into a question I want to talk about later. I really am curious about, like, you know, how you came, came to be and what you're doing. Um, well, first off, congratulations. Researching you got me to log on to Teen Vogue for the first time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a step, another notch in my belt I'm very happy about. But, um, you know... I, I, I did read in uh, the New York Times piece that you had a background in skating and punk rock, and that was integral for you. And it sort of seemed to lend like, you know, when I view your situation from the outside, it seems like you've had a sort of fierce independence, you know, the whole time you've been coming up. And it was important to you to shape your own narrative away from, you know, your family and what you may have been uh, uh, known for by default. Do you think like having an interest in skating and punk kind of helped you like make that claim? I mean, I think I've always been very anti-authority and someone who likes to challenge the status quo and ask questions. I don't just accept things as, you know, this is the way they should be. And from a very early age, hyper aware of inequality in in all systems i mean on a personal level you know as you mentioned my family I'm, i grew up in the movie business but i'm a woman and i have four brothers and right. you know i was aware of the boys club at a very early age and that there was sure. just certain you know levels i could not penetrate um having a, you know in a as a filmmaker so i think early on i was like well fuck that you know, I don't want to be part of a system that doesn't want to have me. So I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, I think just growing up being friends with pro skaters and, um, I, that also like informed my attitude. I like, I like people who are, 
a little bit of outside of what society deems acceptable. Um, the same thing for sex workers, um, for, you know, for people who, who make their living in that way. These were roles that women have been forced into since the dawn of time. It's not like there were other options. Mm. So I just, I think I have a strong sense of injustice, maybe. Um, and I really hate elitism in any form. So that's probably, I think, done a lot to, to shape my, my independence. Was there like a, a specific uh, person or scene uh, in, in L.A. that you were connected to and opened your eyes and piqued your interest? I mean, I've always been someone who has friends in a lot of different scenes. Yeah. Like if I throw a party, I'm probably the person connecting people um you know i'm equally as comfortable like in hollywood as in um yeah porn <laughs> right right <laughs> or, you know or or skateboarding or, or hip-hop or you know whatever it is i'm just really curious about people and um you know i don't think like where you're from or what you do defines you i'd say like the through line is i like people who are who are curious intellectually curious mm. um I like people who like march to their own beat. Yeah, that would be skaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although the music, like when I collected Big Brother magazine uh, when I was Big younger, Brother, yeah. like, I love Big Brother, and I loved all the like skate videos because there was really good music, and you know, I loved the stickers. Yeah. I've done a couple of like skateboard collaboration things, but I loved all those stickers. I still have like my notebooks covered with all of, all of those. Um, I mean, skateboarding has gotten super corporate, but it was really cool in the nineties. <laughs> Wasn't everything was, cooler in the nineties? <laughs> but you know what? The thing that's cool is like, I love the fact that Tony Hawk is still the one at the top of the skateboarding game. And there almost couldn't be like a more legit person to, you know, carry that torch as far as, you know, at least really being true to like what the spirit of uh, skateboarding and punk rock is. You know, I guess, you know, the antithesis to like a Jay Adams or something who... Jay Adams is yeah. like... Jay, Tony Hawk was not on my dream team, but Jay Adams <laughs> definitely is. Yeah. My dream team is Rodney Mullen, Kareem Campbell, okay. Guy Mariano, Alex Olsen, Dylan Ryder, um... Uh oh my gosh, Jay Adams. Did I say Mark Gonzalez? Definitely Mark Gonzalez. Con- yeah, not Gonzo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm leaving someone out, but like Tony Hawk has always seemed to me like a little too square for my taste. Yeah, I don't know. He's like to me, he's almost. I, I feel like in every scene, you know, you start to get someone who like rises to the top and spearheads. It's almost like in the way that if you had. 100 Jay Adams, someone like me maybe never got into skateboarding, you know? Um, and in the same way that, like, for every, you know, Sid Vicious, you need, uh, you know, like a Joe Strummer who kind of knows how to work it and be able to put the politics to, uh, you know, the mainstream in a way that's, like, presentable and ingestible. And maybe sometimes in the long run, you know, that actually does more like like I do think Tony Hawk, even though like you're right, he's always been the biggest, uh, maybe the most vanilla, you know, about his presentation and stuff like that, where, yeah, he wasn't very controversial at all. But at the same time, I think he grew like a sport I loved and a subculture I loved 
And, you know, I always found that place to be like, um, you know, a safe place for me. And I, and I was happy when, you know, X Games started because I'm like, you know what? Maybe other like chubby, awkward 12-year-olds with six earrings in his left ear now has like something else to look at besides for like the lacrosse team, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's important to know how to market what you're doing, um, I think, which is what Tony Hawk's really good at, especially if you're, if um, what you want to do or your point of view is like a little bit left of center, it helps if you've got that, that part of your personality that knows how to sell it to a big audience. Right, right. I am. So I, I, I've talked about this a bunch in here, but it's fascinating to me is kind of the I've seen a lot of, um, you know, people who are singers and, and people who are more, you know, out front, not drummers, I guess, uh, <laughs> who who kind of almost have to create like, um, you know, an external personality to survive, you know, not only the scrutiny, but just even the social interactions, the pressure, the performing. And I've seen people sort of create these, you know, personality exoskeletons and alter egos that they can switch to almost survive in that world. And I, I read a quote your brother said, actually, your brother, Tony, it says, uh, Lizzie's trafficking in the social sphere is very connected to her work. And she's fascinated by the dynamics and the hierarchy of fashion and art. So that, that really made me think like, since, you know, so much of what you do is based on not only your social connections, but social interactions and your ability to, to like you said, you know, go through a room and almost work it. Have you had to do that for yourself? Like, is there a, a different Liz that goes home at night? I mean, in my personal life, I'm really, I'm super like 1950s housewife type vibe. I'm like, I'm a total homebody. I like to cook. I grow my own food. I've always been, I'm, I'm pretty vulnerable person. I think a lot of people, I'm very comfortable with public speaking, um, and comfortable with like stating my opinion, but I'm, I'm not a performer. I'm not, like I'm comfortable being myself in front of the camera, but not pretending to be someone else, if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think also like growing up, just growing up in a situation where I didn't have a choice, but to have some kind of attention foisted on me right. due to the fact that I have a last name that's well known. You know, I kind of always, I kind of grew up really understanding that, clear line between my private life and that there, you know, I was never interested in, um, you know, being famous or anything, or, you know, I just kind of saw observed at a very young age, like how much of a price that came with. Mm. Um, and I think also being a woman and starting to work in the field of sexual health really early and, you know, and then professionally like putting out my first film and book at a really young age and getting a lot of blowback from that. It just right. made me even more protective of my personal life too. Um, you know, because I'm a woman from a well-known family that talks about sex. Right. So I've got like, you know, to a lot of people, three strikes against me. I mean, were, were you under the assumption when you were younger that just people would have preferred you went, you went into a different path? Um, but that's the thing. People would always say to me, oh, you're going to be in film. You're going to be in film. And right. I, it would really piss me off. 
um, yeah. actually that anyone would assume that when I was a kid. And also because I knew like my dad, you know, was my dad was so anti nepotism. He uh, did not uh. see my first film until I had sold it to HBO. Wow. And I had, um, <laughs> Yeah, he was like, everyone assumed like he helped me out all this all, so much. I mean, my father was very like, I had a job since I was 13 years old. He was <laughs> not at all. If anything, he would, he would, he discouraged all of us from being in the movie business and, and more so me as a woman. But I remember I sold, I, so I'd raised all the money through grants and I sold, I sold the film to HBO and I had to show it my dad to my dad because I used a clip from one of my grandfather's films, Ball of Fire, in oh, the cool. movie. And so I needed um, to license it. So my father, and no one else, by the way, no one else, even David Bowie, who gave me the title track, Oh, You Pretty Things, for my film, which yeah. was called Pretty Things. No one else requested to see a cut, by the way. <laughs> but my father did. So he's watching uh, this cut, and then he turns to me and he's like, Oh, well, you made a real film. I was like, thanks, dad. And then he goes, you know what I'm going to do, kid? I'm only going to charge you $100 for the big B. So he didn't even give it to me for free. I forgot what the question was, but. Um, uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I love so, that so much. You know, I like really had to, I really had to prove myself and prove myself to my family yeah. in terms of the movie business. But at a certain point I realized, like, again, there's just a certain level that you can get to as a woman in Hollywood. Um, and I was never going to pass that level, but also I was playing by rules that I didn't really believe in. Mm. And I was always way more interested in, in sexuality. So, um, yeah. So how did that turn? How did you, how did you like, how did you focus on this as opposed to what would seem to many people a natural, a more natural pursuit? Was it that job well, in Santa Monica? Like you said very early on, you worked at um, a Planned Parenthood, no? I worked at a Planned Parenthood, but before, like I said, so I have four brothers, right? So I definitely grew and my dad was like a total ladies' man. So I grew up like, <laughs> there was porn, you know? And I was, I was always curious. I was always stealing my dad's Playboys. I was always stealing like books from the bookshelf about sex. I was just super, super curious and didn't understand why grownups wouldn't talk to me about this stuff. Mm, right. um, so it was always there. And then, you know, my first film and book was about burlesque queens, um, about strip, strip teasers of the 20th century America. Um, and then I was fascinated by sex work even before then. Um, my last book, Sporting Guide, was about... Um, prostitution in LA in the 1890s. But yeah, I don't know. It was just always, it was always with me, that fascination, like way before I figured out what medium I wanted to address that in. And I actually bought the domain names for the sex ed in 2008. I bought the sex ed.com and the sex ed show and mm. everything that I'm rolling out now, I wrote then and just couldn't get it done. Everybody was like, you're crazy. You can't, you can't talk about this stuff. <laughs> I mean, is like, is the, you know, the taboo nature of it, you know, what draws people in? I, you know, I was wondering, I know you, you focus a lot on, um, masturbation when you talk and like, you know, can you, in all your research, can you like almost focus where and when this became taboo and when that started? I mean, I'm sure it's, got a, an ancient history, but, but is there like a way to track that back? 
Um, yeah, we actually have a podcast coming out later this season that is a historical one that kind of goes into some of the actually church carvings, medieval church car- carvings that have gargoyles masturbating. Like you wow. would be surprised. Um, I think we're, you know, the West is very puritanical about sex. I personally believe that parents should be encouraging their children because obviously the same way that animals um, in nature are uh, touching themselves or, you know, sex is natural, bodies are natural. I think obviously young kids are going to explore their bodies and what kids are told at a very early age is don't do that, don't touch yourself. Mm -hmm. Or they're, um, I think, people are not giving the, given the agency to explore their own bodies and their own pleasure before they're introduced to doing that with another person. So in a right. way, if we can know our bodies really well and feel comfortable in our bodies, you're going to have a generation of kids that are maybe going to think about who their first partner is. Mm. Maybe going to really, maybe really consider that. Cause I mean, I think a lot of us, um, around the world, a lot of people use sex mindlessly. You know, they use it to fill a void that begins very, very early and that's linked with um, sexual development. So you think focusing that attention at a young age almost makes people view it in a in a more um, unique and special way where like, instead of experimenting with another person, you're actually giving something very special to another person? Is that like the logic behind that? Well, I think you're experimenting with yourself. I mean, I don't think many people understand how to give themselves pleasure and they expect someone else to show them or tell them that. Yes. And then they spend years like unlearning all this, this stuff. Um, So yeah, I think we need to have a more open, healthy dialogue around this. I mean, even as liberal as my parents were, I never really felt comfortable and they definitely didn't feel comfortable speaking to me openly about some of the more intimate sides of sexuality. Like if I had a, like a clinical question, it would get answered, but you know, more, more subtle things I think are, are, it's tough and kids are not, you know, they're not getting it in school. And then porn is a whole other ball of wax. Right. Uh, You know, speaking of dialogue, I'm sure you've talked to many hundreds, maybe thousands of people about masturbation. Can you think of like what the funniest (laughs) first or most embarrassing masturbation story you've heard out there? I mean, I don't know because I, I'm not, I'm very non-judgmental. So I wouldn't say that anything is necessarily embarrassing. Um, I don't know. I, I had Nick Kroll and Andrew Goldberg on the podcast. So that show big mouth. Yes, I I love it. I think it's super funny. And I think they, they go through a lot of really embarrassing masturbation stories and make, (laughs) make it into, make it onto that show. I love that show. I think there's, there's so much cool content out there now that's like people exploring all the awkward sides of um, puberty. And I love it. I live for that stuff. Yeah, that stuff is cool. I did. I was like, I was like, since we're going into this interview, you know, I feel like I should give my own admission at some point, you know? (laughs) So, so I do have a funny story for myself, which is when I began, you know, the masturbating search of, you know, whatever was happening and figuring out what I needed to do. I lived in an apartment with my mom and I had a very shitty metal creaky bed frame. And if I used, <laughs> if I used my right hand, 
it was quite loud and there was no way to get get rid of it. But if I used my left hand, it was silent. And still to this day, nearly 40 years old, the only thing I do left handed is masturbate. So you're ambidextrous. <laughs> That's at one thing. Yeah, I got a pretty quick snare hand with my left and then masturbating. And it ends there. Yeah. It helped you keep the beat. You know what? Oh, my goodness. It may have. Uh, and that was an excellent pun there. As you know, well, they say Ooh. if you're going to be, they say if you're going to be a good drummer, you got to have a good left hand, right, Benny? Hey, you know what? <laughs> I never realized that I helped my career through trying to trying to let Cheryl not know that I was masturbating. Uh, but she was pretty cool about it anyway. I don't think it would have been a big problem. <laughs> I <laughs> I actually have a funny story. I'm going to save for the intro of this, or should I tell it now? Might as well. Liz is on the line. So I had a funny situation. I lived alone with my mom, you know, single mom at the time. And, you know, I'd started getting into stealing some VHS tapes from my brother. He had like 40 year old virgin. He had like the porn box, you know, the the thing that came in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, which was, you know, a giant cardboard box filled with, uh, you know, tapes the way we used to do it. And uh, one day it's late at night. And I wake up in the morning and my mom knocks in the door. She's like, hey, I need those rental videos. I'm going to stop by, you know, it was called Palmer Video in Somerville, New Jersey. You know, and I'm wearily, I you know, barely open my eyes and I Ugh. give her, you know, a tape in a box. We both, she goes to work, I go to school. I went to work afterwards. She picks me up and we both come home together and we listen to the answering machine. And the first message is, hello, Mrs. Horowitz. Miss Horowitz, this is uh, Palmer Video Calling. We received your copy of Forrest Gump. Yes, this was Forrest Gump. And we didn't find the video, and there was a tape inside, maybe of an uh, adult variety. Can you please give us a call back? We're listening to this message together. When I realized that I had returned Quickies 56... <laughs> In the in the Forrest Gump box, uh, back to Palmer Video, and as you can assume, these quickies videos. This wasn't good pornography. This was a bizarre compilation of basically cum shot scenes. You know what I mean? So certainly not classy pornography going in the Forrest Gump box either. But I'll always remember. You know, obviously we had to remedy this problem. My mom was pretty cool about it. Didn't say much. And at some point when it came up, she was like, "You know what?" I guess I should be worried if you weren't doing it. And it kind of ended there. So respect to, to mom. Do you think in, in, your vast, in your vast experience now, is that a good way to deal with it? Yeah, totally. I think the more that you can just be like, this is normal. This is totally normal. Hey, this happened to me too. You know, I think you just want to be like, don't do it in front of grandma. Don't do it in the living room. <laughs> it's, um, I was the kind of kid who I was, I used to call me and uh, yeah, I would call the, the 800 numbers all the time. I'd call oh, the adult yeah. line. And I also, there was a free um, newspaper in LA back then called LAX dot, dot, dot press. And I would <laughs> take that and they would have these ads in the back for jobs. And I, there was one summer I remember that I had applied to get a job as a script reader um, for, you know, an adult script reader. Uh, and it was like $25 a script or something crazy kind of money. 
Um, and my father had actually been paying me to read scripts and write coverage, um, for him, like him and my older brothers would, cause they'd, you know, have a sack of scripts to, to get through. And they were paying me like nothing. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, so $25 was a lot. I mean, I mean, maybe was getting, I, I probably wasn't even getting $5 a script for not only reading the script, but having to write like coverage on it, which was like a page or two. So this, uh, I remember my mom caught me, um, you know, I was all set to do this job. Right. I was like 11 or 12 and she was like, you can't do that. It's inappropriate. And I was like, but mom, it's like, I'm just reading a script. It's not even, not even talking <laughs> to anybody. I was so pissed. I was like already planning what I was going to spend that money on. Oh, that one hurts. That one hurts. So, I mean, as like a dad, you know, now, um, you know, I'm starting to prepare myself for some of the conversations that are coming down the pipe. And, uh, you know, that's definitely going to be one of them. Have you found anything that is like a like a consistently good way to to speak about that and to, to get it across the kids in a healthy way? And, and like at what age um, or maybe what level of understanding do, would you recommend starting? I mean, I think sex ed, age appropriate sex ed is, should, uh, should happen as early as possible. Even with things just like teaching your kids what the real name for their genitals are. Right. Um, instead of saying like Wawa or PP, <laughs> right, right. um, like giving, giving, giving your kids like names, um, because information is power, right? When we don't understand things, when things live in the shadows, we, they, we develop shame mm. ar around them. So we really have to check ourselves in the way that we speak to kids. And we really have to spend some time, some self-reflection thinking about where our own shit comes from and, mm. and try to get through that before we, we pass it down to another generation. Cause that's how, that's how we got all fucked up <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right, from our parents right. and their parents. So, I mean, unfortunately now we're in a age with, with the internet and social media where we do know the research does show that like kids are going to see porn very early. Yeah. Um, and so I think there, uh, Erica Lust, who's a great erotic filmmaker, um, she has a site called X confessions. She makes like ethical porn, but she and her husband have two daughters and they've developed a really great set of tools, which you can download for free on her site, um, about how parents can talk to their kids about porn because we mm -hmm. can't, you know, we can't protect them from that. Like the chances are that they're going to see it somehow through a friend or whatever, through right. taking, taking your phone. So it's, it's about balancing that out with education um, and the tools, the tools to really understand what it is that they're seeing and that it's not real mm. and that these are actors and this is a performance and that there's a lot of discussion that goes on. And obviously you're not going to talk to, you know, a five-year-old or an eight-year-old about anal sex. You've got to figure out, the age appropriate ways. But if your kid comes to you and says, what is anal sex? You want to be prepared for an answer. Sure. Cause you don't answer your kid. Your kid's going to get the information somewhere else. Yeah. Right. So you want to give them decent information. It, it's taken me a little while to get accustomed to calling it a vulva. I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to be doing that until about a year ago. And I had to get used to that. Um, it's interesting though. So even the last, uh, couple episodes of the sex ed 
um, you know, I noticed both of your guests who are, you know, now either in the sex industry or very, you know, open about what they're doing, both came from sort of religiously constricted environments um, that maybe, you know, led to them uh, maybe not rebelling, but maybe not having the kind of sound understanding that uh, that you're talking about and maybe getting further into it. I think the gray area for me that I don't understand is... So if you're going to use all these tools with someone and make them totally understand it in that way, would more often than not, it seems that that would lead someone away from the sex industry when a lot of times the people, maybe I shouldn't say a lot of times because your knowledge is a lot deeper than mine, but it seems that people who come from environments that were poorer in that regard or, uh, you know, more constricting because of a religious background are the ones that sort of sometimes wind up in it. Is there, is there an explanation for that to you? Well, I wouldn't generalize like that. I'm not sure what guests you're speaking of, like who, who exactly you're speaking of. Uh, it was Riley oh. Reed and the uh, comedian um, you had on just before. Okay, yes, so yes. Riley Reed is today's episode. Yeah. Riley is a friend of mine. Um, Ashley is her name and she is, she's kind of amazing. She's really, she's really making a ton of money. Um, smart, smart woman. I mean, you could, she came across immediately in that interview. Yeah. She is. And she's very vulnerable. And, um, you know, she has, she's actually been like celibate off camera for over a year. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it's very hard to generalize what anyone's peccadillos are or why or how they got into anything. I mean, Joel Kim Booster, who's a comedian, has a really interesting upbringing because he was adopted by a white religious family and he's South right. Korean, adopted from South Korea. So, you know, as he says that he conceptualized, he knew he was gay before he knew he was Asian. Wow. Um, because that's who he saw. He saw saw white people around. So I think, but he's not in the sex industry, you know, he's a comedian and he, but he's very open about his sex life and uses it as fodder. But you could say that about, you know, even I mentioned Nick Kroll and Andrew Goldberg before from Big Mouth, Mm -hmm. like they're using so much of their childhood sexual experience um, as comedy, as animation on that show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't think, I think especially with porn stars, it's hard to generalize. Cause like Asa Akira, who's another friend of mine who was on the second season of our podcast. Um, she's also an author, huge porn star, a mom. And she, she was like a New York city kid, right? you know? Yeah. Like super savvy, super street smart. Like we have a lot of crossover of friends, um, you know, in, in like the art world or skate, etc. So there's not like one specific background that I think breeds people in the adult industry, especially not now when porn has become so mainstream. Yes, I, mean, I went yes. to the um, Pornhub Awards in the fall and there was like a ton of millennial YouTubers there. Right. Like a wash in YouTubers who were trying to like get some of that um, because I still think it's like gives people they think i think it gives people street cred like they they like the fact that it's a little taboo Mm. now but is the goal to you eventually to just like peel 
the taboo off of it or basically just make it uh, like a safe and equal environment? Like what's the real uh, like realistic mission to 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 what you're doing? I want to make it totally acceptable. I want to, I think sex workers, I, I mean, I a hundred percent think sex work should be, should be legalized and should, there should be healthcare. Um, I think that, I mean, there's a reason why we chose Gucci as our first advertiser on the podcast, as opposed to an adult brand. I want to make this subject mainstream. Um, I want, I want to be the Tony Hawk. (laughs) No, I want to have the X games. I want to, it is such a huge divide. And I think especially again, growing up in Hollywood, the porn industry is here as well. Right. And there's like a huge, there's a huge divide. I actually sold my, um, my television rights for my last book sporting guide i the guy who started avn has them because he's way more on the up and up and i would consider a feminist than fucking most of the Mm. suits that i've met with in hollywood where i have meetings and you know as the only woman in the room and they'd tell me it's the year of the woman or they would tell me that i can't have a heroine um selling sex right right you know, I just think there's a lot of hypocrisy. So my goal is one day that, you know, people can be more open-minded and they can stop and take a minute and consider what someone's backstory is, where they're coming from, right. why they're doing something or, you know, I mean, listen, like when I think when, when Riley tells me like the kind of money she's making, I'm like, fuck, I should have an OnlyFans. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Why should I gotten in on that? Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, even, you know, um, I find myself like doing research for this podcast and I realize I sort of have an inherent idea that it's uh, vulnerability that leads people into it. You know what I mean? Like I have this preconceived notion that most people's entrance into that world is not for a good reason. And that's something I realized, you know, going through this uh, research with you and opening my eyes a little more, that's simply not the case. And there's a lot of empowered people, you know, making decisions about their own body and creating their careers, which I have zero fucking problem with. But I can see uh, where this disconnect because of so long of it being taboo. Also, I mean, just the exposure, you know, like I go to my first, um, you know, strip club when I'm uh, 18 years old and it's not a savory place I went (laughs) to. You know what I mean? Like the people there are semi-awful people. I know who they are. You know, I grew up in that area and like a lot of them are, you know, they're there for the wrong reason. So it's often like not the the actors or the dancers, it's often the the consumers that creep me out a lot more than the actual thing itself. Um, well, I think there's still a huge problem with um, women being sexualized to the point where it's like the virgin and the whore myth, you know, that mm. this like, oh, okay, well, if you're a porn star, then you're just an object for me to project my fantasy onto. Yes. And therefore you're not a real human being. You don't have vulnerabilities. You don't have life experiences. You don't have a family. You don't have a child, like all these set of things that, you know, you can jerk off to someone and they could still be an interesting and intelligent person. <laughs> right. And I, I, I actually think that I do find sometimes that, um, 
I, I mean, remember, I remember when we did the Asa episode, the animation, because we animate our guests with this great collective Black Women Animate, this based out of New York. Yeah, it's and, very um, cool, by the way. I love that you guys do that. Thank you. And I wanted, for Asa's animation, I wanted her to be breastfeeding because she had a newborn at the time. Cool. And she posted it on her main feed, and it was amazing, the comments that she got. There were so many people that were like, you're amazing, this is so cool. And then there were all of these fans of hers, these men, who thought it was disgusting. Yeah. Who thought that because they jerked off to her, then she doesn't have the right to be a mother. Right, 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 right. Like they need it totally separate or else the fantasy is lost for them in some oh. some strange way. Because we compartmentalize sex. I don't think, I mean, I my ultimate mission with the sex ed is to tap into the, where sex, health, and consciousness is a really our tagline, is to tap into the consciousness part of it. Because mm. I don't think we're anywhere near the true expansive pleasure potential that we could tap into. And I do feel that's tied into becoming more spiritually aware and awake in whatever that means for us as an individual and, and like having more of a rainbow view of what sex is and what it could be. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even something that your guest Ashley had said that actually made me kind of sad and very empathetic when I heard it was how, you know, when, you start going into that industry and you make it public that you're kind of giving an aspect of yourself away. And, and the fact that like, you know, people like you and, you know, in your community are totally hip to it and understanding and open, but the lion's share of people are still going to hear that industry and have a blanket stereotype on the person that's involved with it. So I could see how difficult that is for a person trying to make a, a well-rounded decision to go into that industry, almost full well knowing that they are going to immediately, you know, lose the, not respect, but just like go down a, a notch in the ladder to, to totally mainstream people. And that's um that's a crazy cross to bear for somebody who needs to get into that. It's giving up a big part of yourself. Well, as Beyonce says, the re best revenge is the paper. And <laughs> I mean, there's a stigma maybe attached to there's a stigma attached for sure to selling sex. But you know, Jay Z is one of the only artists that owns his own masters. And why does he own his own masters? Because he financed them by selling drugs. So sometimes yeah. you do things in one area of your life that are, you know, not legal or I, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's like black or white, any of this. Um, but it, it, for sure, for a woman, there's there's definitely a stigma that once your pussy's out there on the internet, um, you know, no one's going to take you seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's, uh, so, you know, she was talking about how she was raised by a, a religious father. And, you know, obviously we're seeing the backlash in America right now you know, where a good portion of the people we're sharing the country with, you could almost maybe potentially never rationalize this to, and they'll maybe never understand. Um, like in your opinion, is there any way to mold religion specifically like, you know, Western Judeo-Christian religion with sex and open sexuality, or is it just a Sisyphean task and the two should, you know, peacefully coexist separately. 
Actually, we have a lot of, I, I'm very interested in, in religion and, and spirituality and in the intersection with sexuality. We have a lot of sex positive Christians, um, a lot of uh, sex positive Muslims, Jews from all over, all different religions. Our social media manager is a sex positive Christian who does Bible study. Wow. You know, um, so I don't think that I don't think if you really go back into the texts and into the history, again, it's like it's relatively more recent that the dogma has been sort of manipulated to say that sex is wrong or sex is evil. It's not not necessarily in the in the ancient texts. So I think that there is space for these things to coexist because the, so much of the way we learn about sex is through our religious or cultural upbringing. Mm. Um, and again, if you think of like sex as an ecstatic experience, as a divine experience, um, then why shouldn't it be a religious experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you believe in the connection to spirituality through, you know, prayer or through uh, meditation. You know, it's just another avenue there, right? Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I could see it. There's very few times in my life I can clear my head. I know that. And apparently that's what most of meditation <laughs> is about. So I could totally see it. Well, we have an essay on our site about orgasm breathing, and I love to teach it to people. Um, oh, interesting. It's fun, especially when I, you know, if, if we ever go back to public speaking, I love to do it because it's a trick. That I think there's just so many little tools that most people don't realize that they can tap into mm. to heighten their sexual experience. Like, why do you relegate the feeling of being in your body and breathing on like the yoga mat, or if you're an athlete that you can bring all that into the bedroom, sure. you, can, you can, you can think about your breathing and squeezing your pelvic floor muscles, which for regardless of your, um, your genitalia is when you're stopping the flow of pee. So if you combine that movement with with conscious breath work, you can really heighten your orgasm. You can delay ejaculation. I mean, there's so many, there's so many things to explore. That's why I love this subject. It's endless. Yeah. That's a long Avenue. You could always just keep walking down, which is a good thing. (laughs) Uh, So on a funny level, do people sometimes just blanketly dislike your brother because of the character he played in ghost? (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, I, God, I don't know. It's been a long time since that movie came out. But you don't um, remember like someone just walking down the street, just being like, fuck you, pal. I mean, he's 17 years older than me. So I was, I mean, I was yeah. pretty young when that movie came okay, out. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember. And I actually have never seen it because I don't like um, movies where he dies. So oh, I haven't yeah. seen that. I saw The Last Samurai. I think he dies in that he one. Does. He's been in a lot He does die in Last Samurai, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um so yeah, I don't I don't really remember that. <laughs> I, I mean I remember it was a popular movie. I mean I think Scandal probably cha- like I noticed that more in oh, terms okay. of like public interaction. That was that was a popular one. People are fierce about Patrick Swayze. That's why I asked. I, I remember a story. My, there used to be a one-screen movie theater in Boundbrook, New Jersey, that my mom would take me to every once in a while. And she forced me to go see Dirty Dancing. You know, I was very young, had no interest in Dirty Dancing at the time, but she took me. And the screen right in the middle goes black. 
And there's about a 10 second delay. And all of a sudden I hear from 10 rows behind, nah, you put on my Patrick. You put my Patrick back on right this second. And all of a sudden this woman is going berserk to like an empty theater for the spirit of Patrick Swayze to come back. So I wondered if there was some just rabid Patrick Swayze fans out there who just have a, a blanket distaste. Oh, I don't, I definitely don't, I don't recall. (laughs) Good. Well, I'm glad it didn't happen. Um, So I wanted to get your opinion on something. So during the course of the Me Too movement, there's been some really like clear cut cases to me of people who are just awful and don't deserve any redemption, like a Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, like the things they did are just so reprehensible that like, Okay, it's easy to just write these people off forever. But is there a road to redemption for people? And what do you think someone would need to show as far as contrition, a path forward, focusing attention towards the causes that they troubled to basically reemerge into society normally? Or is it necessary to, to really like, banish these people to the side to to make this thing progress in a real way do you have any opinions on on that i mean that's a that very broad um a broad question um we did an episode of the podcast with this woman peggy orenstein who's a um new york times best-selling author she wrote a book girls and sex and one boys and sex which which i interviewed her about and it's it's a great episode i think for anyone who is a boy, a man has, is raising boys because a lot of these things are not so extreme. Like in the case of a Harvey Weinstein, um, a lot of things like, I mean, she brought up stuff that triggered me thinking of things that I experienced, um, you know, in my life, mm-hmm. like, um, a gesture that boys learn very early to push a girl's head down. Like it's a right. wordless gesture, which says, give me head. I want head and girls acquiesce because we're not really taught like again it goes back to teaching teaching your kids about about their body about validating their body so it's it's all these sort of wordless gestures and not actually communicating and so boys learn that this is okay Mm. that it's okay to and they don't necessarily think of it like I'm demanding, you know, sex or I'm demanding head. It's just kind of things that they're subconsciously taught and they're taught this very early and girls are are kind of taught the opposite. So, you know, I think, I think there's so many different extremes between someone who's been pillarized by the media and then maybe a guy who thinks of himself as being pro women and, but maybe needs to spend a little time reflecting on things that they've on their own sexual history. Um, and I don't think that means that you necessarily need to beat yourself up, but you just need to become aware that mm-hmm. you're, it's kind of like white privilege, right? Yes. yes. Um, until you examine your white privilege, you can walk around being ignorant. Um, and it's the same thing. I I just think it's like, it's taking a pause and reflecting. So in terms of like reintegrating into society, 
Yes. I don't, I don't believe I'm not here to put men down. I do believe that to uplift humanity, we need a rebalancing of the sexes. And I don't think that women, um, coming into more of their power now means that men need to be subjugated at Mm. all. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good thing. Um, I want men, I love men. I want men to become more evolved. I want men to tap into being the best human being that they can be. Um, and some of that is going to come with, you know, a lot of acceptance of the ugly side of, of masculinity yes. and, a, and a toxic behavior that they may have engaged in. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating. It's like, I, I was really, you know, raised by a single mom, a feminist, uh, you know, I'm married to a woman who owns a company called New York City Sex Trash, <laughs> you know, is extremely empowered. And, you know, I do research for this interview and I see things and exactly what you're talking about, these old preconceived things that are just built in from childhood and stuff. And I realize even for myself how far behind I am and and how much I do need to learn and do need to understand. So I think there's a long road ahead of you, but I really do appreciate what you're trying to do because the things you're talking about are horrifying for people. So I truly appreciate your efforts. And, and like I said, literally doing research for this interview, uh, kind of scared me, honestly, even cause, cause I'm realizing someone who thought, like you said, like white privilege, I guess it's a, an aspect of male privilege, a lot of the things that I just thought and never questioned are obviously wrong. Um, so I think there's a long way to go, and I appreciate all this information being out there. Thank you. No problem. So this is a music podcast. I know most <laughs> of the time we didn't talk about it at all, but I know you love music. Um, I do love music. So- I, I'm sad about live. I mean, I don't know when we're going to be able to do live music again, but yeah, I love live music. I'm the kind of person who buys people's albums and go, you know, goes to concerts. Like I love music and supporting the music industry. Hey, is there uh, anyone uh, these days that you're particularly into? I've been listening to, I've been listening to what I've been listening to earth gang, the internet, Steve Lacey, um, Oh my gosh. I've been listening to a lot of mantras lately, actually. Um, nice. A lot of like sound healing, Tibetan sound bowls, um, Rolling Stones, uh, always. Jimi Hendrix, always. I've been really into rereading some of the music bios that I find really comforting mm. just for their sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, like, Please Kill Me, an oral history of punk right. by Legs of Neil, one of my all time favorites. Um, Pamela DeBars, I'm with the band, yeah. BB Wells, Rebel Heart. Um, I love like a juicy rock bio. Right. I love like the more sex and drugs, the better. <laughs> I read all of them, like all the Guns N' Roses ones, Poison, Red Hot Chili Pepper, like even bands I'm not into. If they if they spill the beans, like I'm all over it. And then, well, yeah, I've been in like a real, I think because of, so, so like all the bands that are, that are in please kill me, like MC five stooges, television, New York dolls, kind of going down those rabbit holes of those rock bios right now. I love that. 
And I was wondering, do you think who who is the best all time at empowering sexuality in music? I mean, God, there's so many. We- there's so many people from like Al Green and and James Brown um, to I mean, gosh. Lil Kim, Foxy Brown. Um, I mean, I love, I'm a huge hip hop fan. Like I remember my mother throwing a cassette tape of, uh, two live crew out the window <laughs> on the freeway. Cause my younger brother and I were singing along to the fuck shop. Um, <laughs> there's only one place where you can go where the price is right. Just to fuck a hoe. <laughs> always popular with the girls and the guys. And for all my money, it's the best buy. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Quick, like early DJ Quick. I mean, I love like really raunchy hip hop too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. What about so? What about Madonna? She's come up a lot for me recently. Like, d- does Little Kim exist without Madonna? Did she set the the modern contemporary version of like an empowered female sexual figure? Uh, in music, in music. I was really into Madonna. I actually told my mother I was Catholic at one point, so she would take <laughs> me to the like religious store to buy me a rosary. And then she caught on when I like wanted the hugest one, and she's like, "You just want to, you just want to be Madonna." I also got in trouble for stealing the Madonna Playboy from my dad's barber um, <laughs> back when I was younger. I, I don't know. I think little Kim. I mean, hip hop and like Madonna and hip hop are. I think Madonna borrowed a lot from hip hop, actually. Oh yeah, that's um, true. That's true. But um, I mean, of course, I loved Madonna back then. But I, I do think that there's, you know, I, I don't know if I would categorize her and her and Little Kim in the same in the same in the same place. Yeah. She definitely made it more acceptable for pop stars to be sexually overt. Right. Def- definitely. And we didn't talk about Prince. I mean, I love I love Prince. That's also like he's great. He's he's very sexually empowered. Oh yeah. I the mean black album. Yeah, the fact that Prince literally, I mean, to me, at the time he put out Purple Rain, he was neither masculine nor feminine. <laughs> he wasn't rock. He wasn't pop. He was, you know what I mean? Like, he was just this. He was this Prince. Nick, he was just <laughs> Prince. Yeah, the coolest fucking thing. I, I, That's why he just became a symbol. He couldn't even be named after a while. Can't even touch <laughs> it. Can't even touch it. So. Can't touch it. Liz, like, you know, everybody's going crazy for the most part. Um, <laughs> and some people are managing to keep it together better than others. What What are some uh, things you're telling yourself on a day to day to con to convince yourself to have hope and be the best you can and and just some things you're using to to feel better on a day to day basis? Um, well, I think one thing is that it's day by day. Mm. Um hour by hour that, you know, when your mind starts to go to the big hamster wheel of all of it, I think everything we're in right now, I mean, it's an interesting quandary for psychoanalysts and therapists right now, because they're dealing with something that is happening to everyone else and they don't necessarily have the tools to explain it. Mm. So we're dealing with a, we're dealing with something that no one really has the answers for. So one to give yourself a break. Um, for me personally, meditation, masturbation, and marijuana are, yes. <laughs> are, are very helpful. Um, 
you know, I don't know. You, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do right now and, and not judge other people, um, for, for how they're getting through. And, and also think, think that right now is the time to think about community. And in America, we're so focused on the individual, Mm. but this, this is not the time where it's me first. Right, right, right. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, Liz, I think we're over an hour, so it's probably about it, I guess. Cool. Anything, thank you. Anything you want to uh, you want to add to the uh, the anything talk you, here? Anything you want to prop? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, listen to the sex ed and check out our website. And you can we have a keyword search, so you can type in like anything you want to know that we cover from from cannabis and sex to anal sex 101 to prostate pleasure, period yoga. Like, um, you know, um, the whole thing is to be a resource to people. Yeah. The site's awesome. And if, and if you don't jump on, uh, capitalizing from the M cubed of meditation, marijuana, <laughs> <laughs> you really got to make a t-shirt, Liz. I mean, I know it's a little, low, it's a little low brow. You put that t-shirt on, you put that t-shirt on the websites, hotcakes, hotcakes, <laughs> or maybe a kit. Maybe it's a kit. Yeah, yeah, a whole kit. Yeah, that's right. You're in California. You can sell that in Cali, yeah. Yeah, it just grows off trees there, doesn't it? That's awesome. It does, it does. All right, well, well, thanks so much, Liz. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, boy. That was cool. I know. I talked about my penis, masturbation, all sorts of things. I wanted to give admissions. And you know why? I got to be honest about something. Now that we're done with the interview. Did you say you wanted to give admissions? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Close enough, I said that. Um, you know, I didn't want to say in the intro. I didn't want to say in the interview. I didn't want to ruin a vibe. But I got to be honest. Liz intimidates me a little. Well, good. You know? She does. <laughs> She's really smart. She's really classy. She comes from, like, Hollywood royalty. And I'm, like, from Somerville, New Jersey, and I wear the same T-shirt for, like, three, four days in a row sometimes without even realizing it. And I'm just like, I have my own insecurities about glamour and fashion and beautiful people. Uh, And I was like, oh, my God. She's like all of these things. And even though I know her and she's awesome, I was still intimidated. And I was like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to sound dumb. Yeah, this is tricky. I put a lot of pressure on myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a you did a bang up job, Benny. Yeah, we'll see. We'll let the people decide. I'm not going to decide, but I enjoyed it anyway. And honestly, like I said in the intro, I learned a lot, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to have Liz on. Was you know, there's only so many times I can you know, listen to you and a singer talk about <laughs> fucking vocal production or something. and Or songwriting. You know, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, like, you got to expand the mind, you know? And I appreciate that she's found something that she really believes in. She's so educated about it. I mean, uh, her books are literally about, like, you know, the historical sex worker scene in L.A. in, like, the, you know, uh, late uh, 20th century, And, you know, really, really interesting, cool stuff. So it's not just like someone getting on a podcast and just being like, yo, sex is awesome. (laughs) You know, it's like this really like mature and well thought out and understood thing that makes a lot of sense, you know, when you start opening some of those doors. And it's stuff 
I really haven't thought much about and I haven't really had to. So uh, I appreciate what she's doing. And I was so happy she came on and shared with it. I hope the uh, a lot of the going off track audience who probably looks like you or I, you know, understood it and, and took something from it, you know? Yeah. And I would definitely um, recommend that you do chase down some of uh, we'll give some links and stuff because, yeah, she's got a lot of interesting stuff going on. It's way it's way off our track, so to speak. But totally on track. That's what I'm saying. If we're called going off track, we can go wherever the fuck we want, Brad. We got there. You know? we went. I'll do some fucking <laughs> sexy time episodes. I got that shit. Come on. <laughs> I listen to Teddy Pendergrass all the time. Oh, yeah. Mm. Getting caught. I do. You're getting caught. I do. <laughs> listen, I just, I believe in like nice smelling lotions in the shower. You know what I mean? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'll say Easy about does that. It, Benny. I'm, sp- I'm spending too much time in the shower these days, okay? Uh. <laughs> but yeah, so everyone should definitely check out our podcast, The Sex Ed, which is awesome. Uh, it is thesexed.com. It's The Sex Ed on Twitter and Instagram. So she got that on lock. And then her own personal account, she's GoldilocksLG on Twitter, GoldilocksG on Instagram. An awesome follow all around. What do you got, Brad? What's on your mind besides for that blonde hair? At going off track, um, you can Venmo us. Just want to thank Colin, Nathan, Rocky, JS, who recently were uh, hooked us up with some more uh, some more maintenance money. Um, yeah, thanks for everyone doing that. Patreon uh, is not up yet, but I am going to get it up at some point. I realize I keep saying it. It's about week six. This week damn six homeschooling is killing me. Uh, but I'm uh, too busy to get paid. Yeah, for real, right? Um, I know. We're too punk rock, man. But yeah, just keep an eye on our socials. And, if you um, want me to wear more than two shirts a week, maybe send send a couple dollars my way. <laughs> yeah, Benny, black shirts. That's all we got. Is it the same black t-shirt? <laughs> yeah, this I don't even know. I'm not going to look down, but it's probably like a band t-shirt put inside out after two days of just <laughs> funking it up. <laughs> That's probably what's going on. But anyway, Brad, another fun going off track. I enjoy it as always. As always, Benny. And uh, yeah, thanks to Liz. Thanks to everyone who decides to listen to the bitter end Thanks here. to your wife. Benny for putting up with you and for making this podcast happen. Yeah, this is this is all her. I would have never known Liz without her. There you go. So that's awesome. All right. Have a great week, everyone. We'll, We'll be back next week with another awesome one.